0: Carry On Christmas, a Derrick Playfair mystery, written and narrated by Sir Desmond Sterling, Chapter 4 No, no, no! There was the sound of a script being thrown to the ground, and Noel St Giles erupted from his little pool of light in the stalls. He stomped to the stage. Northfield, I, I told you, he shouted. Th- this scene has to go. It slows down the action and it will give the kids the screaming ab dabs Hell, it, it creeps me out. We can't have our audience literally wetting itself. Not with two shows a day. We'll never get the damn seats dried. Northfield marched downstage, his eyes blazing. I was jolly glad I wasn't their target. The spot automatically fixed itself on him. And I say it stays. ''I'm I'm the bloody director,'' roared St Giles. ''And I say it goes.'' Northfield actually stamped his foot. ''No!'' St Giles looked around. ''So so what do the rest of you think?'' Most of the cast looked horrified at being put on the spot. They stared downwards and mumbled noncommittally. Only the two girls, Denise and Jurisela, rushed downstage. ''We think he should stay!'' "'Screeched Denise. "'It's integral to the story,' said Duracella. "'Noel was obviously taken aback by this support, "'but he stood his ground. "'And I say it goes,' he stated firmly. "'It's inappropriate, and it drags the show to, to a standstill.' "'Northfield lifted his hand "'and made a strange gesture at St Giles. "'The director folded his arms. Uh, "That's that, that's "'That's my final word.' Now, we're running out of time. We'll take the end of the Actors Red, and we'll pick up from the top of Act Two. He returned to his seat. Northfield stood still, downstage, still picked out by the spot. The two girls looked at him. He dismissed them with a gesture. They fled off stage where the rest of the cast had already retreated. Northfield closed his eyes and started muttering something to himself, much as he had done in the bar the night before. Abruptly, he stopped, glared once more at Noel, and stomped off stage. I slunk back into my box, both embarrassed and, and fascinated by that little contretemps. Most theatrical tiffs are rightfully dramatic, but then forgotten about moments later. But the fury on Northfield's face had unnerved me. If he had an agent, he'd have been on the phone to him right now. But as he didn't have one, I hadn't a clue what his next move would be. I agreed with Noel St. Giles. It was an upsetting scene, far too strong for the little ones. And as I told all my clients, for good or ill, the director's word is law, even when they're shits. I needed a drink, but I didn't want to attract attention by moving. We'd had quite enough drama, thank you very much. So I settled back in my box and contemplated all that had happened so far. This wasn't over, not by a long chalk. The second act proceeded. It started smoothly enough. To my surprise, Northfield took part. I'd expected him to withdraw in a sulk, amateur that he was. But he seemed less sure of himself. He struggled with lines and moves, almost as though he'd never properly rehearsed the second act. We then had Sparkwell's comedy routine with his vent dummy. She was supposed to be a gypsy crone. It was probably the most hideous vent I'd ever seen. A hook nose, snaggly teeth and pop eyes. She looked more like an evil witch than a fortune teller. Still, his vent skills were frightfully good and the banter amused. But obviously this sequence required audience participation, so Noel St Giles pretended to be a child who'd been pushed up onto the stage to have his palm read. And this is where things turned unpleasant. Noel didn't clamber on the stage, he remained at the front of the stalls. His contribution to the banter was disinterested, but as most children tend to clam up in that situation, it it didn't hurt. But when it came to his fortune being told, a chill shot through the theatre, and I'm convinced the lights darkened. Shall I tell ye your fortune, young master? cackled the old groan. Cross me palm with silver then. "'He doesn't have any silver,' said Sparkwell to his dummy, exasperatedly. "'He's a young lad. He might have a Malteser.' "'Me powers only work when I've been paid,' the fortune teller replied. "'You've got a good union, then,' said Sparkwell. "'I guffawed quietly to myself. Very topical. "'Unions were currently causing havoc with their ridiculous demands for fair wages and safety.' The dads in the audience would appreciate the joke, even if they would have to explain it to their wives. "'Go on, it's Christmas,' said Sparkwell. "'Give him his fortune.' "'Very well,' screeched the old crone. "'He can owe me.' And this is where it went jolly weird. The dummy closed its eyes and let out a long moan. When it next spoke, the voice was quite different, I was initially impressed by Sparkwell's versatility, but not by what the dummy said. It pointed its bony finger down at Noel St. Giles, the eyes lit up a fiery red, and in a man's voice, familiar but not Sparkwell's, said, It's Christmas time, there's no need to be afraid, Oh yes, there is, for your crimes you must be. Father Christmas won't be visiting you this year. Instead, you'll end up with your throat cut underneath the pillow. No looked up sharply. Uh, not funny, Sparkwell. Sparkwell looked as shocked as I felt. I didn't say that, Mr St Giles. That wasn't my voice. Then whose voice was it, if not yours? No laughed, scathingly. Sparkwell shook his head. His mouth flapped open, but no words came out, much like his dummy, which now lay slumped in his lap, the eyes their usual wooden blue. The rest of the cast were peering out from the wings to see what the delay was. Come on, we're we're, we're running out of time, snapped Noel impatiently. Let's get this over with, and Sparkwell, don't push your luck. Sparkwell snatched his hand out of the dummy and staggered off stage, looking with fear at his dummies if he'd never seen it before. I, for one, was convinced that Sparkwell was telling the truth and that that hadn't been his voice. But whose? I recognised it, I thought, but, but couldn't readily identify it. Noel clapped his hands and shouted, Onwards! The musician struck up a tune, of sorts, and the dress recommenced. I caught a glimpse of Northfield in the wings. He was smirking. The rest of the dress passed uneventfully. It wasn't very good. The cast were distracted and nervous. They they gabbled their lines, rocketing themselves towards the finale as if their lives depended on it. Perhaps they did. Only Northfield seemed composed, although his performance was mediocre at best. Even when his villainous Demon King was vanquished... He showed no emotion, just a bored contempt, like a disgraced politician who knows that the punishment being meted out is nothing to worry about, and that his place in the House of Lords is assured. But I was very proud of Compton. He performed marvels with rather naff material and unhelpful circumstances. I just hoped he was going to get through the rum without diving into the nearest whiskey bottle. I doubted that I would manage it. After the dress finished, I didn't hang around for the notes. I sent a message backstage to Compton that I would see him in the foyer. I had plenty of time until my train, and while I couldn't wait to flee Heelmouth and start my Christmas partying properly, I felt uneasy about abandoning poor old Pon'sfoot. While lurking in the foyer, I met the manager of the theatre. He was a dwarf called Grendel O'Malley. He'd been part of a famous troupe called The Pocket Size Pals and, during a summer season headlined by Hope and Keen with Clodagh Rogers, he'd fallen in love with a local girl and had remained behind, easily earning himself that manager job as no one else in the business wanted to live in Heelmouth. I introduced myself and he invited me into his office for a snifter. I warmed to him immediately. He had a twinkle in his eye and an obvious love of the theatre, I asked him for his thoughts about the panto. He shook his head. People here are desperate for theatre and they'll flock to see this, he said. But it's not much cop, is it? Your chap is good, he added hastily. But otherwise, some of the casting is a bit rum, I suggested tentatively. That Northfield Cove. Grendel snorted. Well, they had no choice. Why? I asked. "'No Northfield, no show.' "'He enjoyed my puzzlement. "'He's paying for the whole thing.' "'My eyebrows whizzed up so high that they briefly joined my afro. "'He's the producer?' I gasped. "'Well, not quite, but he's the main backer.' "'Then why?' "'I quickly filled Grendel in about the confrontation during the dress. "'Northfield could have pulled rank far more than he did.' Grindle poured me another drink.' He was rapidly becoming my favourite theatre manager of all time. I'll tell you something even odder. Northfield chose Noel St Giles as director. I goggled at him, but they obviously can't stand each other. Grendel laughed and slugged back his drink. What on earth is going on here? I said. What have I dumped poor old Compton in? Grendel looked pensive. The whole thing makes me very uneasy, but I can't put my finger on why. I made a snap decision. Could I have a seat for tonight? I asked Grindle. I was planning to get the train data, but twelve hours extra won't hurt me. Not only did the little darling offer me a comp, but also arranged for a telegram to be sent to my hosts, explaining my delay. I don't know why I decided to stay for the first night. I just had... An inkling. Something heavy was going down, and this cat wasn't splitting. Fortuitously, I had booked an extra night at the hotel, not intending to stay, just so I didn't have to check out too early. I freshened up, put on my lilac velvet dinner suit with matching cummerbund, my enormous bow tie, polished my three-inch stacked heel Chelsea boots, gargled with brandy, and I was ready for the first night. "'There was a pre-show drinkies do for local dignitaries "'to which Grendel had invited me. "'I hadn't told Compton I would be around. "'I didn't want to add to his first-night butterflies "'by my unexpected presence. "'While I was titivating myself ready for the evening, "'my brain was whirring at the event so far. "'Nothing made sense, "'and I was worried that I was approaching the whole situation "'from the wrong angle. "'I may be a groovy chap with a modern outlook,' "'but I'm still a hard-headed businessman. "'I may dig peace and love, "'but I don't buy into the whole Age of Aquarius jazz.' "'While Northfield was one creepy dude, "'he was no more than a clever conjurer. "'I couldn't see what his motives were for paying for this panto. "'I guessed it was for some self-aggrandisement. "'Maybe it was just to impress the chicks. "'Nothing impresses an actress more than paying for a show "'in which she can star.' but Northfield didn't strike me as a cat who was motivated by the happenings in his British Home Store's Y-fronts. The pier had been lit up properly, and looked gayer and more enticing than it had done the night before. The snow had stopped, but there was a thick, crunchy layer on the ground, and more threatened later. A steady stream of people were walking towards the theatre, so it looked like there could be a gratifyingly healthy audience. Grendel was in the foyer, smart in his... "'presumably bespoke, dinner jacket. "'He grabbed me and led me into a corner. "'Noel St Giles has gone missing,' he hissed. "'Left the theatre after giving notes and hasn't been seen since.' "'I shrugged. Probably had enough and quit town. "'He's an amateur, I could sense it a mile off, "'and doesn't care if he's letting his cast down. "'Grendel still looked worried. "'It's outrageous. A director not staying for the first night.' They're probably better off without him, I said. Grendel led me to the theatre bar, a tiny little room ringed by portholes overlooking the sea. Fairy lights were draped across the bar, and a young barmaid was pouring glasses of baby sham. She was a pretty little thing, her attractive face marred by a frown of concentration as she measured out the drinks. I flashed her the playfair smile, and she inevitably melted. There was a small group of people in there, local dignitaries, I assumed. The first person I met introduced himself as the local chief of police, although I gathered that he was actually the local sergeant with just a constable beneath him. I couldn't imagine that Heelmouth warranted a full force. About fifty years old, a small moustache above his pursed lips, he was wearing his uniform with gleaming buttons and boots so polished I could see a reflection of the contents of his nostrils in them. Self-important, I surmised. But not good enough to earn promotion. Next I was introduced to doctor Hamish McCanish, the local GP. A handsome man in his mid fifties, silver mane of hair swept back from his face, twinkling eyes, perfect, if obvious casting. His wife, a somewhat blousy woman with ill applied makeup, was already drunk. I hoped she would fall asleep during the show and not heckle. I saw the doctor surreptitiously shake his head as the barmaid approached with the tray of baby sham. However, his wife, without turning her head, reached out and grabbed a fresh glass. There was also the mayor and his wife, a couple of such wretched tedium and mousiness that I refused bore you with a description. They were exactly what a town like Hillmouth deserved. It was only a few minutes until curtain up when a young policeman entered the bar and approached the sergeant. He whispered something into his superior's ear. The sergeant looked startled. He in turn whispered something to the doctor who nodded. They both made for the exit. The doctor turned before leaving and excused himself, claiming the duty called and he hoped to see us all in the interval. Grendel looked mightily peeved at losing two of his dignitaries. Actually, he lost three as I slipped quietly out after the two men. I exited the theatre foyer. The doctor and the two policemen were staring over the railings of the pier at the beach below. They walked back down the pier, yours truly in their wake. I followed them as they made their way onto the beach, where a small crowd of people were gathered by one of the pier supports. As the three men approached, the crowd parted. To reveal someone lying prone on the beach, covered in a light sprinkling of snow, I hurried to catch them up, arriving just as the doctor squatted down and turned the body face upwards. It was the director, Noel St. Giles. Sir Desmond Stirling was written and performed by Anthony Keach.